Our, our gospel reading for this morning is taken from Luke chapter 4, it's verses 21 through 32. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me the quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, um, this morning, uh, we're together here this fourth Sunday uh, in a season that we call Epiphany. Um, and one of the things that's really striking about this time of year is, you know, during summer when the light is extra abundant, right? Like the sun's just out, the heat's all there. You kind of take for granted all light and heat. It's actually this time of year, both Christmas and Epiphany, that are these seasons of light when the darkness seems to be at its greatest. There's just something about sometimes the way that darkness or shadow kind of is able to help point and direct us to light in the way that Christ here in this moment is revealing both who he is and who we are in light of him. We're continuing from last week here, the end of Luke's, Luke's chapter 4, the conclusion of Jesus's exciting visit to his hometown in Nazareth. As Pastor Jeff said a little bit last week, the sermon that Jesus gives, he finds in the scroll of Isaiah, it comes from Isaiah 61. It's on the day of the Lord. And there's kind of two images that I want you to really have firmly fixed in your heads as these two stars around which that whole imagery of the day of the Lord would have worked for people, especially in Jesus's time. Just a couple verses after the, verse that, the verses that Jesus himself reads in Luke 4, you have Isaiah prophesying that strangers and aliens shall tend to your flocks, that you shall eat the wealth of nations, that nations will come to your light, that all the nations will gather together and come to you, right? You kind of have this imagery, and it would have been stock imagery, especially for the time. The scriptures will often draw on things that are familiar to the people around them of a conquest, of a triumph, of a victory, and what would have happened at that time with Rome or way back in Isaiah's day with Assyria, with Babylon, is that you have somebody going out and they defeat everybody, and now there's a whole bunch of people coming to the capital, to the place that has been conquered for a couple different reasons. 
won the imagination here. Strangers shall tend to your flocks. People are coming to serve you that you have conquered. As well as everybody bringing tribute, right? Now all the, all the sort of plunder, so to speak, of the nations is coming in. And you kind of have these images working a little bit in light of that. What people could imagine that things have been flipped around. In Israel, this is the big image. Israel has now been, it, it had been humbled, but will now be exalted right? Scripture, in some sense, is always taking all these images and subverting them. And one of the wonderful things about Isaiah is when you have kind of this image of conquest or of triumph, is now all the nations themselves are blessing the God who has triumphed over them, right? They're all invited to this feast of all nations. Everybody is now kind of now present at the king's table. But really important to that, God is fulfilling God's promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations. And at some level, Everything is flowing out from Israel, which has been exalted, to all of the rest of the nations. So that's kind of the first major thing that everybody would have had on their minds. Lord, when will this time come, the vindication of Israel? The second major image here, and I'm just kind of drawing a little bit again from Isaiah, but would have been very, very important, and you find it all throughout the prophets. When we did Zechariah, this was a big theme at the very end of it. Um, this is from Isaiah 59, 18. It says, according to their deeds, which would have been right around where Jesus was reading from, according to their deeds, so will the Lord God repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment of his enemies. In Isaiah 63, you kind of have this imagery that Revelation will pick up on, which would be a story for another day, but of God treading the wine press and the blood of God's enemies spattering uh, his robe, which is sort of this imagery of God finally and thoroughly taking care of all that that opposes or um, rejects who God is, God's mission, God's plan of redemption and of salvation. So these are kind of the two major images that everybody would have seen with the day of the Lord. It's the coming exaltation of God's people to be finally that light of all nations through whom God's blessing shall flow, and also the end of all of God's enemies. One of the things I felt like that was so beautiful um, about the way, I'm sure you guys all remember, I'd be tempted to see if you could remember uh, the, the sounds for Moses and for Samuel, etc. here. But as Pastor Jeff wove us through the brief history of Israel, he was showing how Jesus in his life, in his person, was taking together these strands, different sort of traditions, different moments of Israel's history, and brings them into this beautiful unity in himself. And indeed, it was so credible that he was doing that, that when he announces in this sermon today, in your hearing, the scripture has been fulfilled, it has, because of the teaching that he has with authority, because of the works that he's done, this credibility to everybody who listens. They marvel at the graciousness of his words. This may indeed be the Lord's Messiah. And so people as they tend to do autofill at that point, the sequence and the order through which God's kingdom will come. They have the images from Isaiah and from all the rest of the prophets. And so they imagine now in this moment that this is going to be the Messiah himself who has come and they who are around him. And not only are they a part of the people of Israel, but they're a part of his hometown. And so if Jesus here is declaring that he is indeed the Messiah, that God's kingdom has come, And why is it not sort of this logical conclusion that the moment of the kingdom arriving in Nazareth there will kind of ripple out from Nazareth and spill out this blessing that will then go to all the rest 
of the world. In a sense, you could imagine that what his hometown is thinking here is, is that two the victor's friends, Jesus here, the Messiah, will go all the spoils. Do here also, right, the, the thing that he says that they would say to him, do here also what we heard you did in Capernaum in your hometown. Jesus' announcement, of course, ultimately betrays their expectations. What Jesus is showing them is that we actually don't have any ownership or any entitlement to how when and in what ways God's kingdom is going to come into the world. That people are going to have to try to follow where God is first rather than the other way around. He says two different moments from Scripture to kind of give people a little bit of an illustration. One comes from 1 Kings 17. Many of you could probably give me the outline of that chapter. It's where Elijah first shows up. And it's when Elijah is sent not to one of the people in Israel at that moment in time. He's sent to a woman beyond the boundaries of Israel in Sidon, a widow. And it's there where famously the, the bread and the oil don't run out during the famine. Then Jesus takes it a little bit further and he intensifies it because now he brings in also a story of the prophet Elisha. And this isn't just an outsider of Israel that he's quoting this story from. Elisha actually cures the leprosy of the man who is public enemy number one. He's the general of the Syrian army, which was at that time a chief enemy of Israel. Important to this story, and part of the reason that Elijah and Elisha loom so large, especially in Jesus' day, why is it that Elijah must come first? His disciples will ask him later, because the assumption was is that Elijah would be the forerunner to the Messiah. So they're, they're deeply beloved, and in part, it's because what the people can see is, is that at this moment, and again, I just, I know Pastor Jeff hates when I mention him up here, but I just can't help. This is one of the things I feel like you've helped me see, is that when the king goes bad, the entire nation of Israel goes bad. And at that moment in the history of, of Israel, when Elijah and Elisha are on the scene, it's not that God is going to be unfaithful to the people of Israel but it's that they aren't ready or prepared to be his instrument. And so he calls Elijah and Elisha at some level to help Israel become faithful again so that he can fulfill the promise that they will indeed be a blessing to all the nations. And Jesus here is maybe perhaps reminding his hometown in Nazareth, that very same marker, not that God is bypassing them by any means, but perhaps that they aren't ready to receive the kingdom in its fullness in the same way that Israel under Ahab, under Jezebel, wasn't ready to be the people that God had called it to be so that he could indeed bless them so that they could in turn be a blessing to all the nations. The question that Jesus seems to be presenting to them as they ask him, do here also in our hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum, is that perhaps they might be called like the Messiah himself to surrender and give away everything in their life in order that they might be able to gain in fullness the kingdom. And as the people in Nazareth, of course, hear this, realize this, these unmet expectations that they have, they're filled with wrath, and they take Jesus up to the brow of the hill. I reflected a lot on this passage this week. Pastor Jeff also knows that. And 
I think there are different ways I was trying to hear and, and listen to this passage, and maybe there was a part of me that said, same way that Peter does, surely, Lord, not I. I'm not one of those people at Nazareth. I would never do that, of course. In fact, having lived so many years after Jesus now, I, I get it. I've read the Gospels. I'm not going to expect God to do something. God actually brought me in as a Gentile, has given me this blessing of the Spirit, so I don't begrudge when God does wonderful things for those both inside and outside the church. God can do as God sees fit. But maybe in that dangerous way, when you start asking those questions, start examining my life, I think I did realize that perhaps, maybe not everybody in Nazareth that day, but maybe some of the people in Nazareth and I did share something in common. The wonderful thing that Jesus announces here, of course, in this moment in the gospel, is that God's kingdom has indeed come. And that like all of you, I've been invited into the gift of that kingdom. That there is this, through the gift of his spirit, this healing, this salvation that we can offer to those around us. And I feel like so oftentimes in my life, I know so many different people who could greatly benefit from the gift that God offers. The deep wounds in my family, friends of mine who I feel like sometimes it's just, their lives are just stretched this thin. It feels like they're barely hanging on. People whom I know are going and walking through great suffering, feel a great sense of loss or abandonment. People who I know that are dying. And I say to myself, I know all the things that, God, you have made me capable of. I know that you've called me to ministry. And the only thing that I need, I don't need to be a superhero or a superman. I just need, to, I just need my life to be in this peak form and shape, right? God, if you can just make it so that nothing in my life interferes with my ability to minister to these people, everything's going to be fine. And the thing is, is that the people in Nazareth aren't the only ones who can quote Scripture to the effect of the way that they want it to be. I know 1 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will be able to abound in every good work. Who doesn't know Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And of course, I can tell you exactly what this means. This is what this means, God, that my life should have no, issue, no issues, nothing should interfere, whether that's health, whether that's finances, whether that's friendships, whether that's my personal sense of strength, happiness. None of that should impact me in being able to serve God in the ways that I feel like it would be good to do so. Christ is obviously here. He has declared the kingdom come. I'm an agent of that kingdom. And so it's not an issue for God to at least allow me to function at peak human capacity, right? Just like I did like when I was 20. So this is where I feel like I hear myself echoing the crowds of Nazareth. Come on, Lord, do hear the things that I heard you did in Capernaum. Do in my life, and then I'm going to be a super disciple. I will help you fulfill the mission that you're here to do. I don't know if you ever experienced this as well, but it doesn't exactly work out the way that it makes sense to me. The needs that I have in my life of all those people around me, they remain. But so do my limitations. 
whether that's physical, mental, or emotional, and I feel overwhelmed at times. As I feel like I look powerlessly on others in my life, whose, again, lives feel like they're stretched to the breaking point or hurting. And it's in those moments that I start to ask, like the Psalms, oh God, why don't you hear me? Are you sleeping? Am I just supposed to fail at this? Am I supposed to look on this as people in truly depend on me? There's real consequences if I'm not able to fulfill this calling that you've laid on my life in the way that I imagine it in this moment. They may have a sense of hopelessness. They may feel abandoned or lost, and I could have made the difference in their life if you just would have strengthened me to do it. And yet here I am. And I find myself lining up with that angry mob in Nazareth. And I realize that maybe not everybody that day in Nazareth, but maybe some of them, as they're taking Jesus up that steep embankment, it's precisely out of that sense of anger. It's not because they don't believe who Jesus is. If they thought he was crazy, they just would have ignored him. It's precisely because deep down they know that there is something true about what he is declaring and who he is. And they want to just shake and say, somehow, Jesus, you could do this, you could do it differently so that I don't have to experience in my life this brokenness. So that I don't have to feel so limited by whatever's going on in my family or whatever's going on in the synagogue, the church, the people around me, the guy who lost the job, his family now destitute. And I feel like as I see this scene in my mind playing out, And I can hear the crowd that I am ashamed to be in, but I'm walking in, in, all shouting out their frustration, their pain, their hurts, their demands that God's kingdom, if it comes, should come first to the people nearest Jesus so that they, they, they can go out to the rest of the world. I also see Jesus there taking in the crowd, looking at me in the faces of everybody that he knew growing up, all of our faces twisted in anger and contempt. And that image lastingly imprinted on his mind is there's this unspoken threat that if Jesus would ever return to his hometown again, if he'd ever dare go back to Nazareth, that then that time they would finally finish the job. And as I imagine him walking through the rest of the crowd there, I meditated on this passage. I think as I feel him going and leaving the town, and he passes right by me, I feel him rest his hand on my shoulder. And he says in this voice, it's audible only to me there, you rightly see the needs of those around you and in your own life. But what made you convinced? And at what point did you become so certain that the only way for God to bring healing and redemption in those people's lives was through you at right this moment? Do you think that you're capable of seeing all that God is doing in and through them, maybe even in this moment, maybe even through others around you? I hear Christ saying to me, what made it your burden to fix the world? What if the thing that I really wanted from you all this time was just simply your yes? Your willingness 
with all that you are, exactly as you are, to be in that moment with me, praying, seeking for God to bring his kingdom in its fullness? What if precisely in your weakness, in your limitation, I could make your life 10,000 times the witness that you could if you had all the resources of this world at your disposal? And in that moment, as I see this in my mind's eye, I feel his hand drop from my shoulder, and I can hear his footsteps crunching the gravel as he goes out the same road that ultimately leads to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus and the apostles wonderfully demonstrate what it means to be in the presence of God's coming kingdom, precisely as they live without houses and without food, without safety, without rest, that even as they exercise their ministry, there's always this threat of being crushed by the very crowds that come to receive their ministry. They can live that way with their lives fully poured out, in weakness and in hope, in part because they've received this promise to live in eternity. I think sometimes I forget that that moment that we have in the gospel where Jesus is there in the garden and the disciples are so overcome by sorrow that they fall asleep as though it was just this one little moment in their ministry never to happen before or after. And that more than likely than not, while that was the pinnacle and the apex moment, there were times that both Jesus and his apostles experienced that frequently throughout their ministries. I was thinking a lot this week. You all know, maybe a couple months ago, I was up here and I spoke about um, Catherine Drexel. You remember, she was the woman who kind of gave her life to teaching those um, uh, colored, both Native American, colored Americans. And in her life, one of the people that really stood out to her that she kind of took as an exemplar was a woman named Catherine of Siena. Um, some of you know it's my birthday tomorrow. Um, I'll be, be 35, and it partly plays into um, why I've been thinking a little bit about Catherine. She was the 24th of 25 children, uh, if you can believe it. <laughs> I didn't even know it was possible to have 25. But she was the 24th of 25. She was born in 1347. Um, she uh, early on kind of senses and is pulled deeply in, into the life of the church. Uh, half, of, half of the children in this family actually passed away pretty young. Her older sister, Bonaventura, um, died in childbirth, her own child, like when she was giving birth. And her parents wanted to marry Catherine to the widower there. And she was so upset about it um, she started, she undertook then, a, she was undertaking some spiritual works of discipline that her parents were aware of. And then they said to her at one point that she should make herself more presentable for marriage. So then she went and shaved her head. Um, uh, her parents eventually relented. She never was healthy enough to be able to. She had considered giving her life, consecrating to one of the orders at the time, but they wouldn't let her into the order. Um, she wasn't strong enough. And her mother was trying to help her get healthier, but she ended up through uh, a lay means uh, of being attached to one of them at the time. She um, would take her family's, her family was um, kind of on the, more on the upper class in Siena, and she would, when people would walk by and they'd be in need, she'd take whatever clothing or whatever goods they have, she'd give them all away. Um, and her family would try to get angry or frustrated with her, but she actually lived such so simply within that household that nobody could ever find a way to try to um, 
uh, discipline or chastise her because they were all kind of put to shame by the way that she laved and then gave away all her stuff. Uh, eventually, she would go with some other women and they would go around and care for the sick and the poor because this was her lifetime was right during when the plague kind of broke out and became a very um, contagion that spread throughout all of Europe. She actually became so influential, even though she wasn't a part of an order, but because people looked up to her that she helped to heal one of the great schisms that was going on in the 14th century church at that time. She kind of ended up having a voice with some of the most powerful people in the church. But to me, I guess what, what strikes me as so powerful about her life is that she did all that while she at times could barely, barely be able to eat or function at all. Um, some of the commentators on her life will say that she actually um, undertook such extreme forms of fasting. That's kind of what allowed and led to her decline, and it's undisputable that she did not eat a lot, and that did contribute to her poor health. Um, but whereas I think a lot of her, some of her commentators at least would say that it was because she was just mentally willing herself to, I actually wonder based on her family, uh, her genetics, knowing what the medieval diet was, and being a person who has a lot of different digestive issues, um, that this was her way of trying to sanctify something in her life that just was a health issue that she had. For the last couple of years of her, when she was in her early 30s, I, I, she wasn't able to go or minister as she did before to the poor and to the sick, but she did dictate some letters at that point. She was able to do that. She eventually had a stroke um, that paralyzed her from the waist down, and then it was a couple months later, just after her 33rd birthday, part of the reason I think that she ended up dying. And when I think about her life and the, the course and the scope of it, I guess what feels like I, I continue to hear when I think about this passage and maybe the anger sometimes that I feel is that she was perfectly what was so powerful about her life and what a lot of her later writings ended up being were these um, these moments, these experiences, these visions that she had of Christ. That her life ended up being one of maybe possibly one of the most influential people at that time in the history of the church, precisely because of her simple willingness to receive the presence of Christ in her life, to have an openness to grace at that moment. It wasn't because she was so capable. It wasn't because she just had so much energy. It wasn't because she had such a long life. It wasn't because she had such important connections or that she just worked hard. She was just simply willing to receive Christ as he made herself to her, even in her weakness. This morning, Christ offers himself to us here at this table. And it's a proclamation, that same proclamation that he makes in Nazareth, that God's kingdom has arrived in and through him. And I guess for me, because I come to Jesus, because I come to Christ with all kinds of expectations about how God needs to make sure that I, in my life, am able to be effective in the ways that I determine. His broken body and his shed blood can sometimes be a source of frustration. Because in the middle of my great need, in the middle of my sadness, in the middle of my pressures, I get caught up in the gospel or in, in, the, in the kingdom of God according to Cody. It's why when we invite you up here, this call, this moment, it's the gift also or the welcoming of a moment of repentance, maybe at least for me. Because in Jesus, we don't encounter a superhero. 
who overcame every single opposition and challenge that came at him, but who ultimately succumbed precisely to those forces to have his body crucified and killed, only then to be vindicated as the Spirit raised him to new life. We're called to the table this morning in a similar act of faith and to receive a vocation not of success or of well-being or of effectiveness, but one that has that same character of hope and patience that Jesus himself shows here in his hometown, a willingness to receive God's will for our lives. So shall we pray together? Lord our God, grateful this morning as we have that gospel text, as we have the calling of Jeremiah and the reminder that our spiritual gifts are not for our own good, but for others. Would you allow us as we come to the table this morning to be able to lay down those things that become distractions or that would otherwise lead us astray from your heart, your desire, your true mission and vocation for us. Can we simply come, Lord, as we are, willing to receive you as you give yourself, to be the people that you call us to be, to allow ourselves to be sent out into the world, to be willing, whether we have all things or have nothing, to know that you are all that we have and need. pray this in your son's name.